Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are happy to welcome for the fifth, unprecedented fifth time to the Soul of Enterprise, Dr. Reginald Thomas Lee. Ron, how are you doing? I've calculated that Dr. Lee must be a masochist to be is on the show five times. Yeah, he's got to be. It's <laughs> so, yes, unbelievable. He's the only five times solo guest. We have had other guests who have been on five times, but Rabbi Lappin and, and Father Sirico, but they were on True. together once. So right. technically they're four and a half each. So Reginald, you know, and being, of course, you know, we're going to talk about cost accounting is very important that we be precise today. Yeah, but uh, le- <laughs> le- let me bring it, bring him on here. Uh, Dr. Reginald, Thomas Lee is a professor of business analytics at Xavier University and a corporate advisor for Business Dynamics and Research Limited. And he's the author of The Strategic Cost Transformation, Lies, Damn Lies, and Cost Accounting, The Essentials of Capacity Management and Explicit Cost Dynamics, and as well as his new book, which is what we're going to talk about today, Project Profitability. Reginald, welcome back Thank to The Soul me. of Enterprise. Really appreciate that. It's, a, it's an honor to be here with you two. Well, so we're so happy you're here. Well, uh, let me ask this this question. Why this book now after the other work that you've done? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I think that the now part has a, a different answer. The now is because it was difficult to write. It took me a long time to do it. So it just happened to happen, happen to come out now. <laughs> However, in terms of the chronology, I think that as I lay out more ideas, people are looking for more details regarding how to implement them. And this was an area that I found with my own consulting work, especially working with big firms, that was a big gap in terms of what companies, where companies should be, what leaders should be doing and what they actually were doing. And so I think that the value in this book is something that lots of companies can realize very simply because they'll be able to see themselves in the stories in the book and be able to realize some of the challenges that they're facing and what they may be doing incorrectly and how to fix it. And let me jump in and open with that. You say early on in the book, when it comes to value and saving money, there are a substantial number of lies, cases of deceit and acts of deception to wade through to find true answers. Is this because people lie to themselves or is it because they don't understand it? Well, first of all, talk about some of these lies. Yeah. So one of the ones I talk about in the book is Oracle and Oracle promised two billion dollars in savings from implementing their software internally. Now, the first of all, when we, when we talk about savings, how do we define that? What does that really mean? Are we saving time? Are we saving space? Are we saving money? That's not really clear. And so what we see in many cases is what I call benefit inflation. So for instance, um, with, with Oracle, they may say, I've got X number of people making $100,000 a year. If our software can make them 20% more efficient, we'll save $20,000 times X as a, as, a, as a benefit in implementing their software. Well, that savings isn't realized from a cash perspective. 
it's it's a it's a it's a way to describe the the uh, the the savings in terms of space capacity, in terms of people capacity, etc. But it doesn't necessarily lead to financial value, and so. Part of what I see is that organizations will go out there and, and we were involved with it, right? When I was working and consulting with other organizations, um, we would go out there and try to sell, for instance, an Oracle ERP package. So we would do the same calculation. We'll save you time. The value of that time is $10,000 per person times number of people. And all of a sudden I've got this huge value proposition. Now you're still paying the people. They still work there. So as a result, you haven't saved anything from a cash perspective. And so I think that the deception is that there are these huge financial value opportunities that won't be realized. And so, um, you know, I've, I've been a part of it. I've, I've assessed other organizations who've actually laid out these value propositions. And it's really kind of kind of concerning to me. And I think that that kind of ties back into your first question, that this is probably a good time now that there's a foundation of, of modeling cash, of understanding capacity that I've tried to lay out there with the past books to be able to say, okay, so if this is true and if you buy into this, then these are some of the things that you can do with it, such as how you select projects and how you make sure that they drive cash value on the back end. Yeah, and, and and to that end, I think it's it is a question of people. I think in some cases not understanding that it's that that it's not cash. I mean, I, the, I, the story that I, I share in the prologue is exactly what you just said. You know, he the, they pay him anyway, and so what what does this really mean in savings? But let me ask you this, because one of the the things that ultimately I did come to after that uh, situation was to ask, okay, so we may save uh, Johnny and Betty Sue ten hours. Yes, we're going to pay them anyway for that ten hours. But is it okay to then say, well, what if we, what, what if they re are redeployed for those ten hours a week on something else that does maybe generate revenue and, and therefore also cash? What, are, what about your thoughts on that? So there, are, there are a couple of thoughts actually. The first thought is being very clear about what's happening there from a managerial perspective. So number one, if I'm going to redeploy people I currently have, there's not a cost savings there. So what they may try to do, for instance, a cash cost savings, um, because what we see in many cases, for instance, is if you move them from one department to another, it will have zero effect on the organization, but that department's budget now can be reduced. So they may say it's a cost savings to the, or the, the department, but not to the organization. So the first thing is making sure that when we're talking about savings, we don't try to calculate that as a, a cash savings improvement. The second thing is, um, although I generally agree with the notion that you can redeploy people to generate revenue, we have to be very careful about that. Because if the expectation is that, okay, we're going to move, you know, Sally to sales, is Sally competent in sales? And I think that, you know, is, is there demand for the product that Sally can tap into that the existing uh, sales folks aren't necessarily tapping into right now? So I think that there's a risk associated with assuming that just because I put someone in a different position, that there's going to be value that's delivered as a result of it. And so that's why I think another thing that the book focuses on is the actual execution of what the tool enables. So for instance, if Sally now has time to do sales, that's fine to put Sally in sales, but we have to take a look at, is Sally generating the sales that we expected or not? And so, you know, identifying what appropriate, uh, you know, the appropriate measures or metrics that help us understand if that move made sense or not. Because if we go through and we project out, okay, as a result of Sally, we're gonna sell a hundred thousand more products, a hundred thousand dollars more in products, and it doesn't happen, then we can't calculate. We can't use that as a part of the savings that we had calculated previously. 
Right, and that's where where I would view that as from a project management standpoint as a, as a positive risk, right? This notion of okay, so yes, maybe we can increase sales by a million dollars. Just use picking a number. What what's the percent probability that we will do that? You know, and maybe we can do some kind of an assessment to say, all right, there's only a twenty percent probability of getting that additional million dollars. So maybe we can say that this that that movement that that redeployment has a as a worth as we're trying to assess the value of this of $200,000. That would just you be know, the Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And in fact, I was having um, dinner with a colleague Alex Grimshaw the other day and we talked a little bit about this. And one of the ideas behind this is if you're if if there is uncertainty there, right? We generally are going to uh, not be able to do a point projection saying it's going to be a million dollars, right? Like you right. said, there's some risk associated with that or some uncertainty associated with that. So one of the things that we used to do as strategists is bound the opportunity by saying, okay, so if, if we, and I do talk about this in the book, if we do put Sally in sales, what must be true for Sally to be able to realize sales benefits? For instance, uh, you know, what we'll do is we'll say, okay, at the low end, if Sally goes into sales and doesn't generate any sales, then the benefit's basically zero. If, however, she becomes a rock star, then maybe she'll sell another, let's say, million dollars. So what are the assumptions that need to be in place or what are the things that must be true for her to reach that million dollars? Does she have to have training? Does she have to have the right territory? Does she have to have represent the right products? So identifying specifically what those assumptions are to help drive it towards that million dollars. On the flip side, on the bottom side of that bound is she doesn't do anything. And what happens? Sally wasn't, you know, wasn't, she wasn't trained. She doesn't know how to sell. Um, she doesn't get a good territory or good products to represent. And so at that point, if we lay out those assumptions and we understand managerially, what do we need to do to help Sally get to the million dollars? What do we need to avoid to keep Sally from hitting zero? And at that point, then we can find ourselves on a continuum without being committed to, it will be $500,000 which you know may or may not necessarily be the case. Yeah, it's, it's just when you're up front trying to make that decision, you don't obviously know what's going to happen. So you use right. it as some kind of a proxy and try to figure that out. I want to get to, 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 to the, the notion, though, here of, of the, the first chapter has the, the word deception in it. And is, is it actually self-deception? Because one of the great sentences, if a company known for their enterprise software and consulting capabilities misrepresents their value of their own solution internally, <laughs> right? How can we expect them to represent the value any better of the people they serve, which I totally get. But if they're misrepresenting it internally, is it because they are just deceiving themselves into this thought? Or what, what's the psychology, you think, behind this? I mean, it, it's not that the, the stuff that you come up with, as you say, you don't need an accountant for. It's kind of addition, subtraction. Um, what, what's going on here, you think, from a psychological standpoint? You know, that's a, a great question. And I think it ties back to your first question, which I don't think I did a good job answering. Um, I don't think it's purpose, purposeful deception. I just think they don't know any better. You know, I think that the tools that they have and what they're taught is that, uh, you know, if I if I can identify a number that represents the value of resources consumed, it's assumed that that's money. You know, one of the interesting conversations I've been having recently 
has been both with Institute of Management Accountants and even professors here at Xavier is, what is a cost? Just that simple, what's a cost? And no one can define it effectively. They're diverging. Some say it's money, some say it represents time, consumption of resources, they don't really know. And so if they don't really know, then it becomes hard for them to use it effectively in terms of documenting the benefits that they're having with their solution. The deception I have, even though it's not purposeful, is that I'm convincing you that you're gonna save $50 million by implementing Oracle. It's not gonna happen. You know, if you are you gonna get rid of $50 million worth of your organization, meaning $50 million worth of people, $50 million worth of offices, $50 million worth of equipment. If you're not spending $50 million, 50 million fewer dollars, then that's really kind of a deception that we're telling you you're gonna do it, but you don't. And so part of what I wanna do with this book is both for consultants and for people who buy consulting services is to help explain what's truly going on here so that we as consultants don't deceive unknowingly and customers aren't being deceived unknowingly. Now we can begin understanding what the true value of improvements are from a cash and operations perspective, because that's what truly happens. And if we can do that, then we can have a conversation, work together and try to lead, use that to lead towards towards uh, the, the results that we're looking for. Do you find that 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 some people just inherently get it like for and I, I hate this, that sounds self-serving, but back in, in, in the forward that I wrote, I tell the story about a small business owner that that challenged me exactly on what you just said. And, and, you know, he, this guy didn't have an MBA. This guy didn't. Maybe he was it, maybe there's a there's a danger in being too educated about this stuff because he just inherently knew it. And I pay them anyway. Uh, you're right. You're right. I mean, what, you know, when I teach my MBA students, for example, and like my current MBA class in operations, we start off with lies, damn lies and cost accounting and then strategic cost transformation. And these are well-educated people who just have locked in their minds this whole idea of cost and not really being able to define cost. We're beating that into them and they're walking out. So the more educated they get, the more that we as professors can't teach them something else or aren't teaching them something else, an alternative that mathematically is more representative of what's going on, then it becomes even more difficult for them to break that paradigm. Fascinating stuff. Well, we're already up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes and previews to upcoming shows. We also have a Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can hear the show commercial free without commercials and also get our bonus episodes. That Patreon channel is sponsored by uh, 90, uh, I'm sorry, Mike, Mark Gandy, who is the proprietor at CFO Bookshelf. Give him a listen at cfobookshelf.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My Fraud. Fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. You are here with Dr. Reginald Lee and his book, Project Profitability. I have a bone to pick with you, Reginald. You reversed a Verisage law with this book. The foreword definitely does not contain the total value of the book. I just want to say, just just to be clear. Amen to that. Amen to that. <laughs> uh, just kidding, Ed. Um, Reginald, you taught me that profitability is a loaded word. And you talk about the difference between accounting profit and cash profit. And I just want you to explain that because... We have new listeners all the time, so I'm going to ask you some questions that you've probably explained before. But what about, and and I want you to take on this too as you explain this, because this is what I hear from CPAs. But in the long run, Ron, accounting profit and cash profit are equal. So two good questions. Number one, let's say that you, I tell you that I received $10,000 in sales last month and I spent $8,000. It's pretty clear just from that information that I made $2,000. Now, we don't know anything about the product or services offered. We don't know anything about what the infrastructure that was involved in delivering that, but what we do know is that 10,000 came in and 8,000 went out. So to me, cash is something very, very simple. 
I look at how much I receive and how much I spend, and it's within a given period of time. For example, one example I like to give is in the beginning of the day, I start with $50 in my pocket. I, I give the kids 20 for lunch, for example, um, and then my wife makes the lunches, but let's use this example. So now I've got 30, right? So I go to school, become a prof well, I'm, I am a professor. They pay me $10 for all the work that I, I do that day. So now I'm up to 40 and then I spend $20 on gas and then I get home. So at the end of the day, I'm down to $20. The transactions are within a certain period of time, what I start with and I can project what I end with. Cash is very simple. So when we look at cash profit, we're looking at cash generated over a period from cash receipts and cash dispense, uh, dispenses, right? So what we expect, uh, dispend, expenditures, I should say. Now, when it comes to profit, however, there's so many things that are wrong with it. First of all, let's take a look at the income statement. Revenue, the first line of it. I can recognize revenue for items I've sold and I haven't received. For example, I sell at a, an iPhone and I say, Ed, why don't you just pay me in April? So I can rec recognize that sale from the iPhone today without having re realized a dime, right? So that's one break from cash flow. Then if I had that iPhone in my inventory, then I've got to match it. So let's say I bought the iPhone back in December to put it in my inventory. So the cash involved with matching that iPhone to the sale of this period was tied to money spent a couple months ago. So now we've got a situation where I can calculate profit based on money I haven't received yet and based on money I spent in a previous period, which totally violates how cash works. And then the final element of it is when we start calculating the cost. Now, the iPhone may not be the same uh, example, but let's say I manufactured the iPhone. We've talked about this a lot. What is that cost? And I, it, we kind of talked about this in the last segment. If I calculate a cost of $200 for that iPhone, what is it? I should see a cash transaction of 200 for $200 every single time I make an iPhone, but I don't. And it's the same with any other cash I calculate. The cost of an invoice. If it costs $50, I should see a $50 transaction every time I process an invoice, but I don't. So that should suggest that costs themselves, when calculated, are not money. Now, I've got lots of different costs I can calculate, but that could be a different question. But now I've got this problem. Let's assume that the revenue is money but then the cost isn't money. How can I subtract what isn't money from money and have the answer be money? Right. Mathematically, I can't. And so when I start calculating accounting profits, I start off, start off out the gates with bad math. And then I just use that as a basis for all the other calculations in the income statement. So, you know, I can, my profitability has nothing to do with money because of the timing issues. It has nothing to do with money because of the math issues. And it gets even worse from there. I don't know if you're going to ask about that, but to me, that's the main difference that accounting profit has nothing to do with money. It's all about how I choose to calculate what my revenue is, what I choose to recognize and how I choose to calculate what my cost is. And I can change the cost based on how I choose to calculate it. I can't do that with money. Right. And that's even true if you use the cash method of accounting, which is what I think these CPAs are thinking about when they say in the long run, the two should equal the cash well, domain. And I, I think and the, another thing. Yeah. And I think, and, you know, I've heard this before and that's, you know, the second part of your question. I, I do get that in the, at the end of the day, you know, if I'm about to shut down my books, I should be able to reconcile all that in some way, shape or form. Get it. However, we're not managing our businesses from the future. We're managing our businesses today. 
And so today they don't reconcile. And because today they don't reconcile, what we need to do is make better decisions for business today that set us up, sets us up for tomorrow. So yeah, it doesn't really matter if they reconcile in 10 years, that's not gonna help us if I've got a cash situation today to deal with. In the long run, we're all dead. And, and boy, yeah. is that true for companies? I mean, the timing exactly. differences are, are huge. You know, to count something, we first have to categorize it. And cash is pretty easy to categorize. Yeah, you can make some quibbles about foreign currency, you know, differences and things like that. But like you say, mm -hmm. if you have to figure a cost, then that's an indicator that it's not cash because there's no cash transaction when you uh, process that invoice. And I think this goes to your measure versus metric. And I just want you to explain that because it's another very powerful concept. Sure, thank you. The idea there is that there are some things that I can compare to a standard. For example, we started talking, you know, a while ago when we had the gold standard, then I had, a real, I had something to base the value of currency on. Uh, when, I, when I'm looking at a standard, like an inch, like a degree temperature, like a kilogram in mass, there is a standard there and I can determine how many of those standards are by measuring my subject, right? So that suggests that there's a level of precision there. If my mass is three kilograms, I can compare it to the mass of something, you know, of, of three kilogram weights and they should be equal. So there's precision there. Now, in my mind, metrics are something that's calculated. I've got to figure it out. And so because I've got to figure it out, it's subject to the math associated with figuring it out and the assumptions behind the math. And when you do that, you start introducing subjectivity and error. And so that's why with costs, for example, when I calculate a cost, I don't converge on a single value. If I make the iPhone, I, I could have, you know, Ed could cost it and that iPhone could come up with, come up to $175 and I could cost it and it's 200 and Ron, you could cost it and it's 350. Now that's because of the calculations that we use. That's one of the, 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 the faults of metrics. Metrics are good. In fact, I teach classes on metrics and how to, how to design them. However, because they're subject to the math and the assumptions behind the math, they're flawed. And so when we believe that a metric is actually a measure there we, we believe that there is that precision built in that accuracy built in and so therefore we tie value to the number but we've got a, we've got there's a risk associated with that right we've got to manage how much value we put on a number that can really be anything based on how we choose to calculate it and then so when companies obsess about bringing down the unit cost, which is what they're trying to do with some of these metric and allocations, mm -hmm. it, it also it also ignores a whole other side of this that you talk about in the book, which is the demand. And is there a better poster boy than General Motors, you know, absolutely obsessed with bringing down per unit cost to drive the gross profit margin up on each car and then building so many cars to get that unit cost down that they go bankrupt because there's no demand for them. They're, they're sitting on lots across the country. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent point because when you look at, at accounting data, demand doesn't enter the calculus, right? It's the, 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 to an extent, it's represented by sales, but we don't know if it's sales during a period or when the sales are recognized. We, we don't really all, all, always know that, right? And so because we don't always know that, then it's like, uh, you know, I don't necessarily know that I understand 
why we get wrapped around the axle there. But one thing I, I have asked people when they bring up the reduction in unit costs, I say, so what you're telling me is doing more is cheaper than doing less. Nice. I said, yeah. I said, okay, give me one example, one example where making 20 of something, I spend less money than making two. Especially cars. Especially cars, but really anything. Anything, yeah. And so it's mind blowing. And 25 years of doing this, not a single person has been able to give me an example where although the unit cost goes down, that they've spent less money or would spend less money making 20 of something than two. Nobody's been able to, to to give an example of that. You have to buy twenty engines, you know, eighty more tires, whatever. It's just crazy to think that the the cash cost is going to decrease. And the same obsession, and I love this. You talk about this later on in the book, but the same obsession is true with like very expensive equipment. Oh, we've got to keep it utilized. We've got to keep it utilized. I, I don't know if you saw Monty Python's Meaning of Life, but when all the surgeons are in the room. And, and they say, well, quick, the hospital administrator's coming. Switch on the most expensive machine. So, you know, it makes it look like it's always running. That's crazy, too. It really is. And it's, it's really part of the this, this, this same story, right? I buy this piece of equipment. I was actually talking to someone at, uh, at P&G a couple of weeks ago about this, about the idea of machine downtime. Now, if they say it costs for a machine to go down, Am I buying more people to stand around waiting for the machine to come up? No. Am I buying more materials because a machine is sitting there idle? No. Am I buying other equipment? <laughs> you know, there may be a case where I have to buy other equipment, but generally what we're talking about is a maintenance downtime issue, right? And so if there's no money being spent on extraneous stuff marginally, then where's the cost? What does it mean for a machine to be down? Now you may tie it to sales. Well, that's a revenue issue. And we also are assuming that there's demand for what it is that we would be producing and that this is not this this machine is a constraint resource because if it's non-constraint it's quite possible that the constraint could still be operating without with while this machine's down so there are a lot of assumptions that go into that but we get in this situation where people think oh well it cost me ten thousand dollars a minute for this machine to be down i got to keep it running i got to do this i got to do that and you know we've talked about this with the f and debate right drive, trying to drive up efficiency as a result of this it's like driving up efficiency is causing you to spend more money to to reduce a fictitious cost how much sense does that really make right and i gotta ask you about this and we've only got a couple minutes left but you also take on the accounting cash flow statement and you, you, and i love your condemnation of it because you say yeah it shows you the money that was spent but not how or why it's it's kind of like the our argument against timesheets. There's no context. Yep. You know, we spent yeah, we spent a hundred grand more in labor, but we don't know was that overtime, double time? Did we hire temporaries? You know, who did we pay? What did they do? You know, it's like the blind guys touching each one part of the elephant and they can't see the whole thing. You're absolutely right. And it's funny because a lot of folks say, Well, you know, what you're talking about is a cash flow statement. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> It's not. What we're talking about are the decisions that we make as leaders in the organization and how they affect cash. And so the cash flow statement, like you said, doesn't give me that context. I know I spent $10,000 on lease, but is that one office, two offices? Are they 50% utilized? Do I really need one? If I don't have that context, how do I manage it better? 
And so I think that people are just locked into this thing, kind of the as point in the last segment, that we just have to look at accounting data to get operational information. And it's like a bicycle. It works really well in one direction. Operations of cash to accounting works really, really well. Accounting back to understanding operations of cash doesn't work well at all. It's like trying to put the egg back together after you break it. One more thing, Reginald, because I just read this. Uh, this is from H. Thomas Johnson. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody from Toyota said, if we manage how the work gets done, the costs will take care of themselves. Now, I can hear every cost accountant's head out there exploding with that, going, that can't be true. But my question is, does the Toyota production system get this right? I think they get elements of it right. I think that, you know, for instance, I've written a number of um, articles. I may have talked about this in a book where lean from a cash perspective doesn't take it far enough to generate cash because I make you more efficient. If I haven't changed my capacity levels, I'm still spending basically the same amount of money. I think, though, that lens that, uh, you know, Dr. Johnson puts up in that book uh, was Profit Beyond Measure is awesome because it aligns very well with what we're talking about. If you focus on capacity and how I do the work, then in the end, we will get better numbers on the back, on the back right? But if, if what I'm doing is starting on the back end and I focus on the results, as we talked about with machines, what do I do? I start overproducing things that I don't, don't overproduce. And if you're focusing on the means of doing a work, you'll realize that there's no demand for it. That's where demand comes back into the calculus. If there's no demand for it, don't do it. And so what that puts you in a position to do is potentially buy less capacity. So I, I think in the end, if you project out, I'll be able to meet demand but by doing it effectively, I can do it with less capacity. Right. I, you know, all the lean people t- point to Toyota and they say, oh, see, they eliminate waste, lean. It's great. There's so much more to TPS than lean. Yep. <laughs> I, yeah. So anyway, I'm, 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 uh, I'm spilling into Ed's time here. So, uh, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com and check out 90minds at 90minds.com. They sponsor our Patreon channel, Find the Mind at 90minds. And now we want to hear from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it 
Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Uh, the author is with us today, Reginald Thomas Lee. And uh, I just want to call out something before I ask you the next question of what this book is not for uh, those of you who are listening to it and and either have an accounting firm or, or an IT firm. This is not about how you should calculate the profitability of your projects in your firm. That's not what this book is about. <laughs> this, mm-hmm. this is about your customer stuff. OK, so stop thinking that you're going to be able to look, pick up this book and learn how to calculate your project profitability. You're a fool if you do. Okay, so let's just start there. But um, I wanted to talk to you about something that is near and dear to my heart, Reginald, and you say this in the book. Uh, Usually the team, and this means sometimes these external implementation people as well as the team internally at a company, usually the team is focused on project completion rather than value realization. Mm-hmm. And this thing, this profoundly saddens me because I've seen so many projects that get implemented, quote unquote, get implemented to the, where they get 80% done, but the last 20% is where the value is. But we don't do that because it's going to cost us more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that value realization piece is really where it's at. Absolutely agree. And there, there are two points to that, right? The first is exactly as you said. Uh, you're concerned about the cost of doing it. You know, we got cost overruns and such. And I talk a lot in the book about what true costs associated with projects are. And it's not always as much as we we think it is, especially when we're using internal resources. The cash implication behind it is going to be less. I think the other thing is this assumption. I call it if-then statements. If we implement the software, then this will happen. For instance, we implement um, ERP software. If we implement ERP software, then inventory is going to get out. Well, how? What specifically are we going to do differently that's going to drive inventory down? We have to buy inventory more slowly. We have to not make products that aren't. there's no demand for. We have to sell the finished goods that we have. That's not a software issue. Those are management issues. And so when I think about driving the financial value, the software will enable elements of the, the, the company to improve. Now we've got to take those opportunities and do something with it. 
And I think because we don't do a good job of calculating where the benefits are coming from and the source of the financial benefits, we kind of jump over and say, hey, you know, if we implement, implement Oracle, SAP or whatever, then, you know, we're, we're, we're good to go. Well, no, you have to do things differently as a result of this. And so I think that the value realization is one of the key elements of this, of this uh, book, because many times having been a consultant for, for decades, I don't see a focus on that at all. Yeah, it, it's truly sad. It, it profoundly saddens me because I, I, that's where I see so so many organizations that they they get to a point where they're just not getting to the value realization, and it's because they think if they spend if they, well we we're done spending money because that's what they told us we were going to spend on it, not even thinking well there's really the, the upside is yet to come. I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the, this one of the 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 the, uh, the portions of the book that I really resonated and, and learned a lot from because. Having a background in project management, I had not heard this concept before. You talk about project types, which is the, the an access for one of one of the, the the tools that you present in the book. And there are three types: informational, instructional, and implementation. Touch on each each of those a little bit and, and share with our audience this this whole concept of pro, the project types as you define it. Sure. So the idea behind this is that when you hire a consultant, generally you're hiring consultant for three reasons. Number one, I've got a problem and I don't know necessarily what that problem is. Can you help me figure it out? So for instance, when you look at strategy, my problem is how I'm going to, how am I going to figure out how to go into the future, right? What markets do I play in, et cetera. Uh, risk assessments, are there things going wrong right now in the organization that I don't know about? Customer satisfaction, my, my customers are complaining. I don't necessarily understand why. So you hire someone in to help you understand what your problem is. And so the, what you're paying for is, is information about what, what's going wrong and some ideas about how to fix it, okay? Now, you may hire someone from the outside to have to get that information, or you may already know it. And so the question then becomes, how do, what do I do about it? How do I address this? And so if you know what the problem is, then what you'll do is you'll focus on trying to figure out a plan to address it. So that's the second type of project. I know what the issue is. I need a plan to help me figure out what to do with it. So I'm starting to get a little bit more tactical. And then the third is, I know what the problem is. I know how to address it. I need help. So either I, I, need, I hire an outside consultant to actually run the project or I hire labor to help me out. Whatever it is, I need to be able to drive this thing to fruition. So that's the third type where you're putting rubber to the road. So I know we've had this conversation before in different contexts, but in the context solely of making cash and not considering any other context, the rubber meets the road with implementation because I'm not going to make money by getting information from folks. I'm going to make money by changing the organization that helps me either A, spend less money to, to generate revenue or B, generate more revenue with the money I'm spending. And so what I want to do is have people think about this because from a cash perspective, if I'm creating, if I'm forcing teams to create uh, an ROI for an information project or for an instruction project where someone's putting together, say, a project plan for me, I'm not making any money off of that. I'll have ideas about how to do things and it can potentially reduce risk and uncertainty. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that I've changed the organization. You know, a plan doesn't change the organization. It's the execution of the plan, including the value realization that we just talked about that helps them generate cash from the project. Not saying that that's the most important thing, but the book is about cash. And so therefore, from a cash perspective, that's got to happen. 
Yeah, and, and I, when I read this. This is very much related to something that I often talk about from from Peter Block, which is, you know, what kind of consultant are you looking for? Are you looking for a pair of hands, which is that implementation part? Are you looking for an expert, which is oftentimes that the the, the informational part? And oh, I'm sorry, the and then or are you looking for a collaborator, which is that top level? And here's the the challenge that we that we see is oftentimes companies they don't diagnose the problem right, but they think they have the answer already. And we don't go back and question, you know, what, what was the presenting problem, uh, you know, the axiom of the presenting problem, which comes to us from medicine. You know, when you go to Dr. Google and you, you tell your doctor, this is what's wrong with me. And they say, no, you idiot. You, you don't know what you're talking about. Right, right, right. <laughs> so um, l- l- last thing I wanted to, to, to share with you, and, and this is also to share with the audience the, the value of this book. I beg you, don't leave anything out. There are nuggets buried in explanations of exhibits in this book. So, for example, I want to just read this one. Uh, I don't know if I have a gallery copy, so I don't know if this is where this ended up. But one of the keys in this is that by requiring less capacity to create output, companies now have additional capacity that can either be filled with value, adding work or eliminated if not needed. Reginald, you buried that in the t- in an in exhibit explanation. You could <laughs> that is an awesome statement right there. We got about a, a minute left, so react to that. Sure, and um, yeah, I, I, you pointed that out in the review. Actually, I was hoping I fixed that one. Um, but, <laughs> Maybe you did. I'm still looking at the gallery copy. So, <laughs> oh, I apologize for that. Yeah, that that's a key element. That's part of that value realization, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, what am I going to do with the improve the, the what's created from the improvement? Because all of these, pro- I've got what I call the the buy, consume, create framework. I buy capacity, I spend money on it, I consume it, and I create output. Right. So these improvement projects generally increase efficiency what I can do as a result. I can process more invoices, whatever. But that doesn't do anything other than let us know that we're using, we can use capacity differently. That's all it does. So the question becomes, how can we be effective with this? And the effect effectivity comes in by taking a look at, do we need all this capacity that we're spending money on? If I don't, maybe I can back off on how much I'm buying, buy cheaper, and have a cash imp- impact on that. Or if I, can, if, if I can move people to another part of the organization and keep from having to hire from the outside, that's avoiding having, having to spend cash. So to me, it's about taking this efficiency improvement, saying, all right, so how can I be effective as a manager and do things to my business that increase improves its performance so not just you know the the efficiency is what people the consultants will focus on but i think we should focus on being effective with what happens as a result Amen. We, can, can I get an hallelujah from the rest of the Verisage listening and Soul of Enterprise audience? Well, the, thanks so much. Ron's going to take you the rest of the way. Reginald, we're so glad that you're here with us for a fifth time. want to remind those of you listening that you can get contact Ron and I by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Uh, we also have that Patreon channel, but now we want to hear a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My Fraud. Fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Reginald Lee. His book, project profitability and Reginald another you bring up another topic and I love how you handle this because Ed and I have been banging our spoons on our high chairs about this for a long time you say it is also important to look at the entire organization and not for instance a department or a division boy amen and I it, just real quick I remember the remember the Apple versus Epic lawsuit uh, and and the, Uh, I think it was Tim Cook who was on the stand being grilled and they asked him, what's the profitability of iTunes and his answer? And you can read the court transcript. He said, Steve Jobs didn't set it up that way. We have no idea what the profitability of iTunes is, he says, because Jobs pulled all the individual department P&Ls because we had a situation prior to that where there were such intramural fights over allocation of costs. Each division showed a profit while the company was losing a billion dollars a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly what you're talking about with this breakout of, of P&L. And, and then you get into these allocations of these costs that are arbitrary to begin with. Right. I mean, who gets what credit? I mean, think about it. It's, it's always the case, right? You're trying to sell a project in a CPA firm and how do partners get credit if they work together on it? You know, it's, a, it's an arbitrary decision. And what's really important is that they sold the, the gig and that they're going to be able to do work that generates cash for the firm. And it just seems like companies just get so wrapped up in those things, Ron. And it's just, I, I just don't get it. 
why is it that we need to account and see to me like on my website i ask is is the tail wagging your dog and to me that's the tail that's wagging the dog this whole idea of trying to account for these numbers account for these costs by allocating them account for revenue credit etc and you spend so much time on that that you're ineffective <laughs> you're just taking away your time and being able to go out and actually sell and deliver products uh, services you know it's really sad to see and and of course the accountants would argue but you need to know the profitability of each of your lines and you know so you can determine which is profitable and which is not and i just think now you got to look at this more like a portfolio i mean you're gonna aren't you gonna know the dog products by yeah, their lack of sales that. Yeah, even beyond that, I mean, I don't think that profitability by customer is a good idea at all. And as you and Ed know, um, the student McKinsey and I just published an article um, in cost management talking about customer profitability and why it's a bad metric to begin with. And you and I have gone back and even talked about uh, you know law firms doing the same thing years ago. When you calculate the profitability, that's not telling you if you're making money. Going back to the income statement comments back in the uh, earlier segment, if I come up with a cost associated with serving a customer, those are all people who are on salary to my organization. So I'm paying them whether they're on the project or not. So it's not as if there's a marginal increase in salary resulting from me going and having someone uh, you know, work on a tax return or, or work on some, a matter for one of their clients. It doesn't work that way from a cash perspective. So profitability and then the accounting firm, law firm, advertising firm, et cetera, by customers is a misnomer itself. It's not telling you what you think it's actually telling you. You know, you also wrote that you, there's, you create significant challenges when trying to understand the impact of improving an organization's performance using accounting information. And I'm just really curious, Reginald, from an engineering standpoint, can you walk into a, a factory floor like a BMW plant and get a feel for how the work is doing and maybe even make improvements without looking at any financial information? You know, it's interesting you say that because with my work at, at BDR, it's all guaranteed. Um, we focus on cash improvements and in 99% of the cases, we never look at the financials because you know that the financials aren't aren't telling you what's going on from an operational perspective. So one time a, a guy in the PE space said, hey, can you look at these and tell me what's going on in the organization? And I said, no, I've got to go there. I can talk to people. I can take a look at quality charts. I can take a look at finished goods inventory, see if there's orders assigned to them. I can look at this, the production systems inventory in the systems. I can look at the data that they use to make decisions, managerial decisions, and get what I need to know about how well that business is operating without calculating a single cost. See, that's amazing. Johnson also said this. He says, you can use accounting to describe a business's external condition, but it offers little insight into the particular inner relationships that determine those results. I mean, it is literally the difference between autopsying a dolphin, you know, performing an autopsy and swimming with one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that when I, when I take a look at what accounting comes up with, it's one of an infinite number of representations. But there's only one instance of what happened that led to that accounting information. And if we're managing our business on, on this, this, this abstract idea rather than the concrete information, it's going to sub-optimize what it is that we can, the decisions we make as, as, as leaders. Johnson's absolutely right. The focus should be on 
the internal elements. And when you look at the means, that's operations, that's cash, that's capacity, doing that stuff effectively, efficaciously. Then you'll, like you said earlier, Ron, then that's going to drive the results in the back end. Take care of the means and the results will take care of themselves. And I'm just starting to think about it and just in terms of, you know, how do we get work through this organization, whatever that organization is, Boeing, GM or an accounting firm? Yeah, we got work to do. How do we what's the best way to structure it? Right, right. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Reginald, as we talked about at the break, I am so frustrated with the accounting profession for not knowing this, not being familiar with the literature. First off, I don't understand why the accounting profession is so tied to cost accounting because they didn't invent it. You guys invented it, right? For the for the railroads, um, and you know, I th- I find it you know charming that uh, engineers leading us out of it. But what wh- what do you think it is about people who are practicing, whether they're in industry or in public accounting, and they're they're foisting? They just they continue to make these errors over and over and over. Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to one of the earliest questions that Ed asked, and I think that's because. They don't necessarily know better. And to your point, but if the information's out there, why aren't you looking for it, right? There's information out there that explains some of this stuff a little bit differently. Because to me, when when I talk to accountants and they don't understand, for example, like in Strategic Cost Transformation, the last book, we can break the organization up into operations and cash, which is where business happens, and accounting where I report on the back end. If I do that, now I can compartmentalize the information that they're asking for and I can understand where does that information come from? It comes from the decisions I made as a leader, how I use my people, resources, et cetera, to create output. That is where the key is. And if you wanna improve your organization, that's where you look. And it's interesting, I'll close on this because there's a, a, a statement that I use oftentimes and that's when people ask me, well, using your approach, how do I calculate this information? Well, you can't get that from an operations and cash domain. That's like asking where the gas tank is on a Tesla. Tesla. You know, if I am, looking for a gas tank, I have to look in a particular space for it. And it's a particular type of car, particular element of the inf- of the company. That's where it is. And what they can't do is they don't see to break away from that. And when they can't see to break away from it, they're locked in. And unfortunately, that limits their effectiveness. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Well, anyway, this is a great contribution. Hopefully some scholars and other professionals and consultants will read this and maybe they'll actually change their mind. So, Reginald, thanks so much for appearing today. It's always an honor to have you on. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to talk about the work of David Maester, specifically, if you want to follow along with us, his work in the book True Professionalism. Awesome. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p- at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 